Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Unfortunately, concussions and traumatic brain injuries, or TBIs, are far too common in cycling. Whether training on open roads, racing at high speeds, or facing off with rush hour traffic on your bike commute, cyclists often place themselves in vulnerable situations. Head injuries are becoming increasingly diagnosed among the two-wheeled crowd. What's more, there's a good deal of misunderstanding about what exactly the terms concussion and TBI mean. Are they the same or very different? How should you manage each condition? What are the potential long-term repercussions of concussions, for instance, if any? We'll tackle all of these questions and many more in this episode. We turn to Dr. Stephen Brolio, the director of the University of Michigan Concussion Center and the director of the Neurotrauma Research Laboratory at the university for guidance on this complex subject. Dr. Brolio has spent much of his adult life studying the causes of concussion, the effects of concussion on the brain, the short and long-term concerns, the best course of management, and the use of helmets, of course. His experience and knowledge on the matter make for a compelling discussion. Add to that the conversations I had with Timmy Duggan and Hannah Finchamp, two athletes who have each suffered head injuries. Timmy's story is well known. While racing at the Tour of Georgia, he was involved in a horrific crash which led to a severe traumatic brain injury. And today, he shares his experience from the injury to the acute aftermath and rehabilitation to the long-term and psychological impact the injury had on his life. You'll hear from him throughout the episode. And Hannah walks us through how being hit by a car led to her concussion and how that impacted training and life. All that and much more on today's episode of Fast Talk. Listeners, we have exciting news coming soon from Fast Talk Laboratories, our education, coaching, and community membership. Sign up for our free listener member level at fasttalklabs.com. We'll stay in touch with everything that's new. Plus, listener members get access to our searchable podcast episode transcripts and our forum. Don't miss out. Join for free at fasttalklabs.com. Well, we welcome Dr. Steve Brolio to the episode today. Thank you for joining us on Fast Talk. Great. I appreciate uh, the invitation to be here and talk about my two favorite subjects, concussions and bikes. Give everybody out there a sense of your immense experience and background in this this area of concussions, TBIs, and the, that sort of thing. I started in this space uh, somewhere around 2000, um, and, and kind of you know for those that were uh, in and around athletics at that time, we'll probably remember that was a, a period when somebody had a concussion. You would and they would walk to the wrong sideline. You would chuckle and send them back into the game, point in the right direction, send them back in the game, and kind of continued with the work uh, through grad school, which I finished up in 2006. And, and right around that time, I think that the national conversation around concussion shifted quite dramatically. Uh, if you think about uh, those kind of when the first modern CTE case or chronic traumatic encephalopathy case was identified. Uh, and then it's just been a whirlwind since that point. We've been pretty fortunate to have pretty good funding and, and try to contribute to the literature and trying to understand injury identification and management and, and what are the long-term effects. I've been doing that since 2006 um, in a formal way and uh, at the University of Illinois to start. And then uh, now I'm finishing up my 10th year here at the University of Michigan. And you are the director of the Michigan Concussion Center and the director of the Neurotrauma Research Laboratory there. 
That is correct. Uh, so the, the lab has been here as long as I've been here. Uh, so we started that when I came in and then the centers uh, we're coming up on our second anniversary here in a month or two, um, which is funded by our university president. So uh, Dr. Schlissel saw something in that uh, and we're just trying to make sure that we, we do the good work and, and get the message out. And it, it uh, should also be mentioned that you were a bike racer, an elite level, Cat 1, you said, bike racer. Uh, not sure how much you ride uh, these days because of all this uh, work that you're doing, but you have a background in this sport, so you, you know it from that angle as well. Yeah, so uh, started riding, racing in my teen years, and I would say I kind of officially hung up the wheels, I don't know, probably in my 30s. Uh, when work and, and family kind of got too much to handle, um, but still ride pretty much on a daily basement or daily basis in my basement. Uh, a lot of Zwift, Zwift World Championships type of things going on uh, at five o'clock in the morning down there. I think you might have just coined a new COVID term. <laughs> <laughs> daily basement. Daily basement. There you go. There you go. Well, let's jump into this uh, very, uh, what I know will be a fascinating conversation about these two things, cycling and concussions. It is a serious concern for cyclists. Um, There is a lot of misunderstanding out there, I'm certain, uh, about these, the the different terms that are thrown around, about the different symptoms that people see. Uh, we, We will also get into the fact that it might not necessarily present at the same way in a cyclist as it would in another athlete from a different sport, football or soccer or something like that. But maybe we should really start at the very beginning, which is defining some terms, concussion, TBI. Give us the very um, basic definition of those terms, if you would. TBI is traumatic brain injury. And probably the easiest way to think about it is that's the umbrella term for all injuries that occur to the brain. Um, and then within TBI, we have three, I guess, large buckets, if you will, um, mild traumatic brain injury, moderate traumatic brain injury, and severe traumatic brain injury. When we talk about moderate and severe, we're talking about varying degrees of structural damage to the brain, uh, and then the cognitive and other uh, impairments that come with that. Mild traumatic brain injury, or the, the least severe, obviously, um, is often used interchangeably with concussion. And, and there's, there's, some, there's a bit of a debate around that, to be quite honest. So some people will, will use them hand in hand and concussion is just a little bit easier. When you're talking to individuals, concussion is just an easier uh, way to express that. Others feel that concussion is its own entity separate from mild traumatic brain injury and it might be the, the mildest of the mild, if you will. Um, so th- that's kind of on a large scale, that's a way to think about it. I think when we talk about concussion specifically, at least the way it's conceptualized in, in the sporting context and, and the cycling, um, to be honest, there's over 100 definitions in the literature um, that, are, that are out there. Uh, I was on a group last, we, we published a paper last fall, so that's another definition. I'm, I'm on another group that there's probably going to be another definition later hmm. this year. And so part of that is a lot of groups want their own definition. Uh, and then part of that is just how the science has advanced over time. And, you know, just because you wrote a definition yesterday doesn't mean it's going to stand up for all eternity. So, you know, we learn more and then we revise the things that we learn. But really the, the way to conceptualize it is, is it is a traumatic brain injury and it's induced by a biomechanical force. And that force could be either a direct impact. And, you know, the easiest one is like a helmet head to the ground in a cycling case or helmet to helmet in a football case. 
Uh, or sometimes it can be an indirect impulse. Uh, so not so much in cycling, but if you think about a football player being tackled around the chest, you know, running down the field, being tackled around the chest, it's almost this impulsive force that comes up through the neck and then into the brain. Um, and really what that results in is um, the really rapid onset of uh, neurological or impaired neurological function that will resolve on its own over time. And that resolution, it varies. Uh, we might get into this, I think, maybe a little bit more, but on average, it's about two weeks. Um, but really, I think up to a month is probably more of a normal recovery period for most people. That outward expression of clinical signs and symptoms, so the headache, the nausea, the fatigue, the, the mental impairment, is representative of a functional disturbance within the brain and not a structural disturbance, um, at least on a macro level. So if you were to take someone into the emergency room, put them in a CT scan or an MRR scan, there wouldn't be damage to the soft tissue of the brain. You wouldn't see anything. But at the cellular level, the way the cells are functioning, um, that has been altered. The, the, the neurons get stretched. You get this uh, uh, imbalance in uh, the ions um, between the inside of the cell and the outside of the cell, and it just doesn't function properly. The, the signal doesn't propagate down the neuron as it should. And that's the, that's the slow to respond, that's the uh, deep or increased reaction time, the inability to remember things. That's kind of where that comes from. The other thing to think about, this is more from the medical side of things, but the other thing to think about is uh, when someone suspects this has happened, they need to make sure that it's not, it can't be explained by something else that's going on. So drug use, alcohol use, medications, um, cervical injury, vestibular injury, like all those sorts of things um, can happen simultaneously. Well, the other injuries can happen simultaneously um, and they may present like concussion. So vestibular disorders, people get dizzy. They may have headache. Uh, you can have neck injury that results in headache. So those may present like concussion, but aren't actually concussion. So the medical practitioner needs to make sure that they can differentiate between a cervicogenic headache or a vestibular headache and a concussion-based headache. So it gets very complex, particularly in the world of cycling, when you're on the side of the road and you have to make a decision in you know, 30 seconds so they can get back into the group, um, as opposed to on a, even, even on the football sideline, we see this all the time where symptoms evolve over time and they get it wrong and somebody comes back into play. It's, it's not as clear cut, I think, as most people would, would like, to, like it to be. It's not like a broken bone where you can put them in an x-ray, you see the broken bone and it's a done deal. Um, there's a lot more that goes, that goes into it from that perspective. We're certainly going to get more into that, but something I want to bring up right now with your, your definition of concussion and, and TBI, uh, I found this really interesting. You wrote a, a review. So back in 2015, you had a conference about concussions at, uh, in Michigan and wrote a, a great review of, of what was discussed at that conference. And something that really caught my attention and first surprised me, but then made sense was on the one hand, you talked about all the great awareness in the last 10, 15 years about concussion and, and all, the, all the great research that's leading to, but did point out a negative to this, which is a, a large percentage of concussions are going to resolve in, in two to four weeks. And there does seem to be th this perception now, at least in the media, that a kid gets a concussion and, and this is for life. Yeah. So I think two things. I'm glad you brought that up. So I think there's two things. I think commonly we hear that the normal time to recovery is, is 14 days. And I, I said the average time to recovery and, and I'll stand by that. So 
I think a lot of medical providers relay that information. If somebody comes into their office and they're diagnosed with a concussion and they say, oh, you know, within two weeks, you should be fine. And then immediately on day 15, when they're not fine, the athlete uh, and potentially the parents for that matter start to panic. You know, what's wrong? I'm not recovered and, and things aren't right. But the reality is it, it's 90% of people recover within a month. So 50% within two weeks, 90% within a month. So if you just happen to be in the 51st percentile, then you're extending beyond that two-week window, then the, the psychology starts to play into this, right? You start to think about, well, why do I have these symptoms? What's not going right? And people can go down a rabbit hole and, and cyclists being, you know, you spend a lot of time alone on the bike and, you know, you start to become very internally focused and you know that your left pinky toe is off a little bit today and things don't feel right. And so you start to like people start going down this rabbit hole and all like the psychology starts to overlay with the biology of the injury. And then maybe you have a parent that's kind of, well, Johnny, are you OK today? Or Jane, are you OK today? And then so then you get the social aspect right, that overlays with this or, uh, you know, you should be OK and you're not OK. So all this stuff starts to, to interplay with each other. Um, the other side of that is there is definitely a fear. We see this all the time because the way that the injury is portrayed in the media, uh, including a movie, major motion picture titled concussion, um, that, you know, if you have an injury, you are destined to have some sort of long-term neurodegenerative outcome. And that is simply not the case. We do not see it. Um, I would never recommend go hit your head. I, I, you know, I think that's bad, but um, we have absolutely no reason to believe that one, two concussions that are, that are identified quickly and managed well, that, that, the, that the patient should have any reason or any cause for concern for a poor outcome. Now, there are cases, and I think we're going to talk about this later on, where people have, they have an injury and it's not managed well, maybe they return to play too quickly, um, or they're never removed from play and they have multiple head impacts, uh, particularly while they're still injured, um, or more severe injuries that have long-term consequences. Uh, but a routine concussion in and of itself, we, we have no real reason to believe that, that there's a long-term issue. I think that the, the other side of this media, uh, looking at it from the media's point of view, I guess they're trying to make stories, of course, or not make stories, but they, they latch onto stories and tr sometimes turn them into something that they're not. And you've seen maybe the terminology, uh, a concussion epidemic. From your point of view, is that something that exists? No, I don't. I don't think there is an epidemic. I think I think what's happened, particularly since around 2006, 2007, when concussion became, you know, a common terminology, at least you know within within everybody's vernacular, um, is that we're starting to pay attention to the injury a lot more and deal with the injury a lot more. Um, so when I talk to the athletic medicine folks here at Michigan, um, you know, some of whom have been on sidelines for 30 plus years. And they'll tell you, like, there's no more injuries than there's ever been. We're just, we just don't ignore them, you know, particularly, you know, if you think back to the, the 80s and the 90s, um, you know, like I said, you know, somebody would have a concussion, they'd walk to the wrong sideline and you would laugh and pull them back and on to the next play. And now we recognize that as a brain injury and uh, they're removed from play and they're managed and, you know, it gets documented. So it's more about recognizing the injury and, and, and treating the athlete for the injury as opposed to just ignoring them and, and really treating it as a blow-off type of thing. As Chris mentioned at the top of the show, Timmy Duggan agreed to sit down for an interview about his experience having a traumatic brain injury. Here he is now with the story of what happened. Let's just start by having you describe 
For those that don't know how you suffered a TBI, take us through, if, you, if you're willing to, what happened to you in that race. My incident was in 2008, and I was racing the Tour of Georgia at the time with, uh, with Team Garmin. And so they tell me, I don't remember any of this, so sure. <laughs> everything I'm going to say is all, I guess, hearsay. And yeah, I think it was stage four or something. And you know, I, I remember lining up at the start on that day, I think, and that's kind of where it ends. Um, but anyways, like, I don't know, halfway through the stage, we're descending uh, some big descent. We're going like 60 miles an hour or something. At the bottom of the descent, there's like this bridge with these expansion joints in it or something. And somebody in front of me like got their wheels stuck in that and crashed in front of me. And then I, I guess, was unable to avoid it. So I crashed into them and basically did a 60 mile an hour swan dive into the pavement. And yeah, like I, like I said, I don't, I don't remember anything. Thankfully, I was, we were really close at that moment in the stage to Athens, Georgia, where they have like a world-class medical facility there. So um, I didn't even have to get in a helicopter or anything. Kind of my next memory was i don't know probably over a week later uh, and I, I wasn't in a coma mm-hmm. but I, I just don't have any memory sure but my next memory was like probably a week week and a half later waking up when they were like wheeling me in to do surgery to fix my collarbone and my shoulder that i had also broken so i had what is called a, a subarachnoid hemorrhage and subdural hematoma most people that have that kind of injury are dead. I was very lucky in that they did not have to do any surgery um, or drilling into my head to release the pressure from the bleed in, in my brain. Because um, right as they were about to do that, basically it started sort of subsiding sufficiently on its own. So I didn't have to do any of that. You know, a handful of riders, friends, whatever, that saw it, you know, it, they said it was one of the craziest things, you know, gnarliest crashes they've ever <laughs> seen. And, more than one person was like, yeah, I almost quit cycling after seeing that. Wow. Yeah. Um, Alan Lim, my coach at the time, he was like one of the first on the scene there with me, apparently. And yeah, he said it was pretty Brutal. pretty crazy scene. Yeah. yeah. Like apparently I I crashed and then like right away I like got up and stood up or something. But then I like fell over and then I was like out and like had convulsions and I, I mean, I... Wow. Don't really even want to imagine it. Like, I, I don't have any qualms about talking about it. Like, I don't remember anything. So there's nothing that, like, triggers some yeah, bad which, feeling about it or and something. That, which, and that's probably a very good thing, totally, right? Totally, totally. Like, I, I think it affected other people far more than me in terms of sort of post-traumatic stress or, sure. you know, trauma or whatever. Yeah. Because I was just like, oh, oh. Well, okay, this is how I am now and what I have to do to move forward. But I don't remember exactly what happened. So, there, yeah, there was nothing I was, like, afraid of moving forward. Well, t- t- let's, let's go there. How did you move forward? What were, the, what were the initial experiences like, that acute period where you're wrestling with the fact that this has happened to you, but also the rehabilitation? Just let me back up. You know, I was in the hospital for a couple weeks just resting, and then I had to have surgery for the shoulder and everything. And then I had to hang out like another week before they would let me fly because of the pressure on my brain and everything. So I was there in Athens for like three weeks or something. Finally got home. And then that was when, you know, things kind of started to become a little less foggy and I could kind of start assessing what was going on. And 
um, where I needed to go from there. And um, I started rehab at Craig Hospital at that point once I got back. Um, so that's, you know, world-class, nationally known brain and spinal cord trauma center. Mm -hmm. In Denver. In Denver, yeah. I was inpatient there or outpatient rather. So I'd go there like five days a week, but I wasn't like staying there in the hospital or anything. Well, that segues well into next question that I would have for you, which is getting into this identification of a concussion in, a, in an individual, in an in individual. And maybe we start by asking the question, are all con concussions built the same? If a concussion is presented on the sideline of a football game. Does that look like one at a soccer game or at a at a uh, you know in a cycling event? Yeah, so I think the the biology of the injury is the same no matter the context. So, certain amount of force is applied to the brain. Uh, we talked about the stretching of the neurons, the shifting of the of the ions within the neuron, and then this dysfunction that follows. So that biology is the same no matter the the athletic setting. Um, I think what changes is the context under which that happens. So within a cycling event, within a football event, within a soccer event, the psychology that the athlete brings with them. And then as we touched upon, like kind of what's the, the sociology kind of around all of that. So the biology is the same, but how that athlete may um, internalize their symptoms or think about their symptoms, their resiliency around injury in general, um, you know, what are they hearing from coaches and parents and their teammates? Um, and then the culture that kind of surrounds all that may alter the way that, um, that they progress after the injury has occurred. Um, you know, and, and you, I would even say, you could go so far as to say, even outside of the athletic context, that biology is the same of a, a slip on the ice or, um, I don't know, somebody, you know, in a dorm room that wakes up too quickly and hits their head on the ceiling. Um, you know, that biology is the same, but it's all the things around it that may, uh, that may cause, uh, you know, how it, how it manifests and how it is managed and propagated to, to change. One thing I found really interesting, certainly when you hear about concussions in the press, they're talking about the, the impact sports, so soccer, football, things like that. But so I'm looking at a study right now from 2019 looking at uh, concussions. So they were trying to do a review of concussion uh, research in, in cycling and in bike races. And they looked at 94 studies. Only They only included two of them. One of them was a single case. The other was an opinion piece. So basically they said there has been almost no research in cycling. But then they had a, kind of a sobering line here, which is, these statistics show that approximately 1.4 million persons are treated for TBIs annually in the U.S. And of these, an estimated 207,830 are related to sports and recreation. Cycling is reported to account for 40,424, or 19.45% of cases, the highest number in any sport. Sobering, isn't it? I'll challenge some of their, their numbers. So Broadly, what we cite for sport and recreation-related injuries is 1.6 to 3.8 million per year. Um, and partly why we cite that number is that a, it, it, somewhere around 50%, we don't know the real percentage here, but around 50% of injuries go unreported. Um, so you can imagine, I mean, 
we've probably all seen it happen. You're at a, a weekend criterium, somebody crashes, they bang their head, they're like, ah, I'm gonna go home. And then by Monday, Tuesday, they feel okay. And you know, they never see anybody. They don't never get reported or documented anywhere. So, so, so the numbers are probably a little bit higher. The other thing is just about everybody in the United States learns to ride a bike at some point in their life. And if you look at the age at which concussions occur, you see a really high number in the kind of late single digit years, kind of still ticks up into the teen years. It, it flattens uh, somewhere in the 20s and starts going back down and it's, it's pretty low late thirties, all the way through like the late sixties or so. And then it starts to go back up again. So at the early end of the age spectrum, um, you have kids learning to ride bikes, um, kids falling off of playground equipment, all those types of things. Uh, then you get teenage, largely boys, men engaging in high risk activities. So automobile accidents, uh, contact sports, contact collision sports, those types of things. And then that obviously tapers off once college and you know, the early twenties flattens out through our adult years and then goes back up in the 70s um, as older adults when we start having balance issues and start tripping on rugs and those types of things. And so we see a, another spike at the tail end of, of the lifespan. Um, so that is the, the number, the percentage you cited, the, I think it goes close to 20%, is largely because of people learning to ride bikes. And I can just say, you know, I learned to ride a bike probably late 70s, early 80s, uh, no helmets. Right? We didn't have wear helmets back then. It wasn't until I was a teenager we started wearing helmets. So um, that has, and I know we're going to talk about helmets later on because I think it's an important thing, but you know, that in and of itself, just how we engage with safety equipment in the modern era uh, is much different than it was. And even as I go through my town, I see you know, a lot of kids without helmets or probably as many of us remember as teenagers before driver's license was, you know, yeah, I may wear my helmet out the door, but as soon as I get around the corner, mom and dad don't see me, it's like helmet comes off not cool. Right. Uh, which I do not recommend, of course. But so that, that explains the, the number, I think, that, that you just cited there. I would also attribute this to the fact that this is a sport that a lot of people use for commuting. And I think when they were looking at those numbers, they, they were extending it beyond just participating as a sport. I think they were looking at a lot of commuters. Uh, there was another study that I looked at that we'll probably bring up at some point looking at um, concussion in cyclists and most of the cases of concussions they have were people getting hit by cars, uh, somebody walking out in front of them on the bike path, things like that. And so sports like football, even they, they might have a potentially a higher rate of concussion. I couldn't find anything on that, but you just don't have the, the volume of people participating in football that you have riding a bike. Exactly. The, the, the percent of football, it depends on what you read, but it's somewhere in the seven, the, let's say 10% per season. Hannah Finchamp, a pro who races mountain bikes for the Orange Seal off-road team, has had a concussion as a cyclist. Sadly, her experience being hit by a car is not an isolated one in our sport. I think, I think it's tough. I think that I might have a little bit different perspective on this than um, many athletes because I am a certified athletic trainer. So concussion is something that, you know, I, I learned about extensively in school. Um, so for me, you know, when I had my concussion, I was fully aware of 
what was going on, what needed to be done. But, you know, on that, on that note, I think that even as someone who knows exactly what's going on, who understands the risk of post-concussion syndrome and second impact syndrome and, and all of those things, it's still incredibly challenging as a professional athlete because this is what we do for our living. We ride our bikes for a living. So anything that takes us away from doing that um, is scary. And so it's, it's very difficult, especially you know when you first sustain the concussion, it makes sense. Okay, yes, I, I need to stay off the bike. But, but it, it's in those steps where, okay, you know what, now, now I'm feeling good but I get on my bike and then I have symptoms. I think those, that time period is the most dangerous and the most difficult because as athletes, we're taught to push through pain. We're taught to push through uh, discomfort. And when it comes to concussion, that is absolutely something you cannot do. And, you know, concussion is the invisible injury. It's, it's the one thing um, that really no one else can tell you whether you have it or not. You know, there, of course, there are specialists and there's all kinds of baseline tests and all these things that we can do that better our abilities. But, you know, most of our diagnosis of concussion is, is signs and symptoms. And so you, as an athlete, you have to be really, really honest with yourself and others and doctors and whoever you're working with um, and be open and vulnerable and say like, hey, here are the things that I'm experiencing. Did having a concussion change you as an athlete in any way? Did you come back a different person or a different athlete? Um, I don't, I, <laughs> for me, um, in terms of lasting symptoms, no. The concussion that I sustained was from getting hit by a car. So that experience as a whole uh, certainly changed me. Um, just because, you know, I, I think, sadly, I think too many cyclists have been hit by cars. But for me, having that experience and, and coming out the other side safe, you know, is a moment where I, I had to stop and remember, like, any day on the bike is a good day. Concussions are a functional disturbance of the brain. Uh, that al It alters um, ionic balance and metabolism. So, uh, I'm sure you guys know, you know, it's not a bruise to the brain. It's, it's not, it's, it doesn't necessarily involve bleeding of the brain. You know, it's none of these things that we can physically see. It's functional, not structural. So the best analogy I've ever heard is, is thinking of a snow globe. It's like when you shake the snow globe, everything inside gets all confused and fuzzy, but nothing breaks. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just love that analogy because I can picture our brain as that really fuzzy snow globe. <laughs> Let's get back to the cycling specifically then. What are the signs for cyclists to look for? Um, they've had an accident on a training ride. They've hit their head. Their helmet isn't cracked. Uh, it's scuffed a little bit. How do they know if they have a concussion? How do they know if they should go see a doctor? When when do they make the, that decision? Is it is it too late if it's been a a couple of weeks and then they start having symptoms. So this is maybe a complex question, but take it, take it away, Dr. Brulio. Yeah, it is a complex question. I thank you. <laughs> um, so I would say, you know, if, if you're out on a ride and you have the crash and, 
you know, whether your helmet is scuffed or not, um, I think that it is the, I don't feel right, I think is the easiest way to say it. Um, you know, and that's assuming you're not a medical professional and can kind of self, you know, be self-aware about it all. Clearly, if there's any loss of consciousness uh, or if you're with somebody and they crash and they're, uh, and I've seen this happen, I, I, I was in a, a race a number of years ago and guy crashed, I crashed into him, but you know, he, he's like, what happened? And then you told him what happened and then two minutes later, he's asking the same question, what happened? So repeating that same question uh, again and again, uh, going in and out of consciousness, uh, declining mental status, we see a lot, um, any sort of uh, repetitive vomiting would be a pretty big red flag that you wanna be worried about. Um, but if you're alone, or really just if you have suspicion and concern, I would say going, you know, there is no harm in going in and then coming out of the physician saying like nothing to see here. Um, and better, better to be checked and understand what's going on um, than not. Beyond that, I think from the medical provider standpoint, um, the, the provider's clinical exam and impression of the athlete is the gold standard for diagnosis. So I cannot put you in a scanner of any form. I cannot um, give you a specific computer test. I cannot give you a balance test and say with 100% certainty you have a concussion or you don't. It just doesn't work that way. Now there is, and this just happened last week, so I don't have a lot of information on it yet, but um, a company announced a blood test for a concussion that supposedly is 90% accurate. Wow. But I haven't seen the data. I don't know anything about it. I, like I said, it just happened last week. So I'm really curious as to what that's going to look like and how close to the time of injury you can get this blood test, how fast is the processing of the blood so you can get an answer. But I, I do think, I mean, we've been talking about this sort of thing for a long time in, in the research community that you know, blood biomarkers are probably the next frontier and it seems like we're getting there. Um, so it's very exciting, but I just don't have a lot of information I can share at this point because I just don't know. But, but you do know that there are blood biomarkers that could indicate when somebody has a concussion. What, what do those things indicate? So really, it's the, this one, I, I believe, is a combination of two blood biomarkers. One is called GFAP and one is UCHL1. There's other blood biomarkers that people are interested in. Um, but really, it is uh, when we talked about that stretching of the neuron, it is, it's released because of that stretching. And, and these markers come from various parts of the neuron. And so part of, the, part of my questioning around, I don't know how fast uh, or how close to the time of injury that can be used is because... If this marker is released within the brain, it has to cross, cross out of the brain, over the blood-brain barrier, into the bloodstream, and be in the blood in sufficient quantities that can be picked up on the panel. So I, I, that's why that may take some right. time, and I don't know the time frame that, that it, would, it occurs in, how sensitive the panels are, and those types of things. But that's the kind of high level of what they're looking at. Um, so, and, and people are looking at different markers all the time to try to understand, you know, is there a single one that we can use that shows up in, you know, really ideally it'd be, you know, in seconds after injury. I'm not sure we'll ever get to that point, but uh, people have looked at saliva, people have tried to look at urine, people have tried to look at sweat. Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of people dedicating a lot of time and resources to try to figure this out because I think the rapid and very accurate diagnosis is, is what we're all chasing. Um, seconds after injury, do some sort of test, have a yes or no answer that's of course 100 perfect um, so we can make a decision because sport is very different it's very different than walking into a physician's office 48 hours after the fact and he or she has you know half an hour to make a decision or half an hour to do the exam and then two days to have a blood test run 
um, sport and cycling is very unique. It, you know, you, you've got to make as a if you're in a team car and your rider goes down, you have to make a decision decision in seconds so they can get back on the bike and back into the caravan and then back with the group. So um, it, it just has a lot of challenges around it uh, that you don't have in civilian life. Well, that was something I was about to bring up, and that was the the study that I was just uh, quoting. Which I should give the title. It's sports-related concussion (SRC) assessment in road cycling: a systematic review and call to action. They bring that up that the cycling poses unique challenges that you don't see in other sports. So, I'm sure you can talk more about this. But they they bring up this SCAT five test uh, for a concussion and say that's great if you're a football player where they can bench you for five to ten minutes, do an analysis on you, and then decide to put you back in. But in a bike race, you've got 30 seconds or you've missed the field and you can't do the full analysis. So they actually, at the end of this paper, do a call to the UCI to say, if there's a, a danger of a concussion, you should do a full analysis. And then if they're cleared, actually drive them back to the field so that you can take the time. But what's, what's your feeling about all this? Yeah, I, I, so I have not seen that paper. Uh, I'm glad you, you, you highlighted that last sentence because that's always been the challenge, right, is uh, giving the medical team enough time, you know, roadside in our case, uh, to do that evaluation. Uh, but then, you know, how do you get the athlete back into the group? So, uh, and, and right now, at least the way the current regulations work, uh, I think as we all know is, you know, basically it's like get the athlete back on the bike as fast as possible. Um, and then maybe let them hang on to the side of the medical car if there is a medical car uh, and then kind of do it while you're rolling. But that, that poses all sorts of risks uh, because if the athlete is concussed, they, there's a really high chance they have impaired motor or impaired decision-making, impaired motor function. Um, and if anybody's ever had to hang on to the side of a car at, you know, hundred K an hour to get back into the group, like it's scary enough when it's normal, you know, you're hundred percent healthy and let alone if that athlete's impaired, you know, you don't want them going down again. So, um, I, I like that idea. I hadn't heard it before. Um, I would encourage, uh, USA cycling to think about it if, if they want. And, uh, obviously the UCI for that matter, um, the UCI did announce uh, concussion protocol. I think it was last late last year, um, which largely included the SCAT five that you mentioned. And I'll talk about it here in a second, but I don't recall anything about, kind of allowing for a full sideline or excuse me, roadside eval and uh, basically you know, getting them back up to the group. Um, the SCAT-5 um, is uh, a product of the International Sport Concussion Group. Um, it's essentially, which full disclosure, I'm part of that group. It's, it's a, we're not paid, we're just part of the, like a scientific community. And uh, really what it does is it combines the most common uh, concussion assessment tools into a single packet, which is the, the SCAT tool. And then the five is just the fifth version. So within it, there's, there are um, what they call red flag, a screening for red flag. So these are signs, symptoms from the athlete that would indicate that it's a medical emergency and they need to be transported. Um, so after that, there's some orientation questions, uh, but then it's basically uh, a symptom screening, uh, a mental status check, uh, and then a balance exam, balance and motor control exam. And then that's uh, interpreted by the clinician and a decision is made. Um, so the, the symptom checklist is exactly what you would think it is. Do you have a headache? And if you do, can you rate it for me? You know, zero to six, uh, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, does the light bother your eyes, does noise bother you? 
when you get into the mental status screening, uh, there's an orientation section. So do you know where you are? Um, it's largely geared for contact sports um, or field sports. You can do what the score is, who we played last week. Uh, then it gets into an immediate recall. So uh, remembering a list of five words. Uh, then there's uh, a concentration section. So repeating a list of numbers in the reverse order they were given to you. And then there's a delayed recall. So the five words I gave you two minutes ago, can you repeat them back? In theory, all that can be done while you're hanging onto a car um, driving down the road. Uh, but the one that couldn't be would be the, the motor portion. So that's a balance exam. Uh, and then there's a, a like a heel-toe tandem gait type of test that goes with it. So that one would have to be dropped from cycling um, if it were to be implemented during a race. Um, I do think that the SCAT could be used uh, after an event. If there's a suspected injury, you could definitely do it after an event, you know, whether it's just over the finish line or at the hotel afterwards. Um, the, the Really the nice part about it is it, it can be done in about 10 minutes, maybe a little bit long, a couple minutes longer, um, which not for roadside, that's not so good, but you know, at a hotel or something, um, but it's free of charge. There's no cost to it. Um, so one of the things that have been used over the last two decades are these computer-based tests and they carry a pretty big cost. And the SCAT is as good, if not better than the computer test um, and uh, it's free of charge. It's just download the PDF and print it off and, and off you go. Um, so I think, you know, we all know that cycling has a lot of funding issues, particularly at the non-pro level. And uh, so teams that are looking for something uh, that need something to, to use, I think it's a good alternative for them. And on this SCAT 5, to be clear, I would assume you do not have to meet criteria for every single thing in there. It's a, there's a threshold you must reach. Is that correct? Yeah. So each section is scored, but there's no composite score that's, uh, I'm just going to make a number up, like, you know, you cross below 60 and you have a concussion. Um, so it's it's really up to the medical provider administering the test to say, oh, they have high symptom score, they have a really impaired motor function, and their mental status screening is really bad. So yes, you know, he she has a concussion, um, or yeah, they're reporting high on the symptom, but they also just did a 200k race and you know 100 100 degree heat, and yeah, of course they're fatigued and they're grumpy, right? So you know that that's where we say like the assessment itself doesn't doesn't give the diagnosis. It's up to the provider because there's a lot of context that comes into all this. Um, and so, or, or they have impaired motor function, but yeah, when they crash, they hurt their hip. And so they can't stand or walk as well as we would hope or under normal circumstances. So that's why there's no cut score on these things to say, you know, above the score is good, below the score is bad. Well, it really sounds like while you have an effective tool here, what's just as important is who's administering it. As you said, you could download the PDF, but I wonder if a lot of coaches would have the ability to take an athlete through this test and then say, yes, you have a concussion or, or no, you don't. And I'm just thinking, I know what state I'm in three, four hours into a hard race. I think I'd fail three quarters of this <laughs> test <laughs> even if I didn't fall over. Trevor likes to bury himself. He goes into cognitive debt at a certain hey, point man. in a race. <laughs> Leave it all out there. Um, yeah, so there. I, I'm glad you said that because it is. I, think that, I don't remember the exact language, but there, I'm pretty sure there's language on the form that said this is for medical providers only. And so, unless the coach also happens to be an EMT, an athletic trainer, a physician, whatever, um, probably not appropriate. I would also just say that you know the coach has got a conflict of interest, um, and that's not to say that they don't mean well in everything that they do, but 
they're there to win. That's, that's their primary goal. Um, and so then asking them to make a medical decision on a marquee player, a marquee athlete, um, or just not even the, any athlete for that matter, um, there's a conflict there. And I don't think we, I don't think I could endorse that. And look, the athletes have conflicts too. I'm just picturing a cyclist who's three days into the Tour de France. They've spent their whole year getting ready for the tour, fall over, hit their head. They have a concussion. They don't want to pull out of the race. They're, they're going to do everything possible to convince whoever's testing them that, yeah, I'm fine. Put me back in yeah. the race. And, and I feel like that happened. I'm trying to remember. I may get the names wrong on this, but I feel like the story is something to be effective. I think Bonin crashed early in one of his later tours. And, and it, it kept, I finished the stage and kept riding the next couple of days. But then I think it was Cancellara that basically called him out and was like, dude, you're a danger to everybody out here. I think you actually have it right. I do remember a moment in time like that where the rider was sort of just not acting the right way in the peloton and becoming a danger, and, and Conchalara spoke up. And, um, yeah, certainly the, the story that is maybe even more uh, famous in a way is, is Chris Horner really knocking his head, um, getting back on the bike, finishing the stage, not knowing, not really knowing where he was or what he was doing hours later after finishing the stage and, and all of that. So, yeah. Yeah. It's um, a complicated issue. In, in, it's, in, it's very, you know, and, and the tour, stage racing is a whole other level, right? Because if, obviously if you don't finish today, you don't race tomorrow and yeah. you don't always know in the moment roadside how that athlete is going to be. And um, we haven't talked about it, but, you know, concussion is an evolving injury. They, they may present fine, when you pull up next to them and put the new wheels on or give them the new bike and send them on and an hour later, they may have raging headache. Um, so it's, it is not, I think as simple as uh, it is often made out to be, it's not as clear cut for sure. Timmy Duggan shares a bit more detail about the symptoms of his TBI, as well as the initial steps he took to recover. The, di the difference between concussion and TBI is a significant one, but you had a relatively severe, if not very severe TBI. Does that also mean you had a very, very severe concussion on top of that? How does that work from your point of view? I mean, I, I would say some of the general or ultimate symptoms would, would be similar, but um, yeah, I think, a, again, I'm not a doctor or anything, but I would say the defining feature of my brain injury or a traumatic brain injury versus a concussion would be you've got some level of severe bleeding in, in your brain that caused from was caused by your um, brain like shearing against your skull and like, spinning effectively in, within in your the, skull within the skull yes yeah yeah you know some of the ultimate repercussions of a concussion or multiple concussions can be similar to some of the ultimate repercussions that maybe I'm, I'm dealing with or have dealt with it was interesting you know in the years later you know talking to other people that had a brain injury or or even just concussions or several concussions like how similar at least some of the, the things were. It's like you can kind of relate to it even though you didn't have like the exact same injury or mm -hmm. even close to the same injury. But right. um, a lot of the sort of ultimate repercussions can be pretty similar. Can you take us inside what some of those symptoms are? So initially I didn't have any problems with like balance and coordination, which I think you would – 
sort of imagined would be sort of a standard thing when you hit your head that hard. Like I didn't have any problems with that. Like I think the first day of rehab at Craig, I was literally on one of those balance boards and juggling three balls <laughs> and reciting every third word of the Pledge of Allegiance. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that in normal times. Right? <laughs> um, so I was like, see, I'm fine, you know. But then other things uh, were just totally off the scale, you know, like my kind of spatial reasoning and ability to uh, sort of plan things um, and some emotional stuff, like all of that was you know, really messed up, even if my vision, coordination, balance, all that stuff was, was totally fine. So it, yeah, it's definitely interesting to talk to other people who have any, any level of head injury and, you know, the symptoms are just, I mean, there's just no rhyme or reason. It's just so individual, you know, per, per person. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, you talk to somebody else that has a similar or even less severe injury and they might have long-term, you know, balance and coordination or vision issues. And, you know, I had this injury that almost killed me and like I never had anything on right. on that side yeah, of things. That's, yeah. that's wild. Yeah. One of the things that I know I want you to talk about today is something you mentioned to me when we were setting up this, this interview, which is the fact that you could meet with a thousand specialists that have studied, you know, each of them has studied a thousand different cases of TBI or concussion or whatever, but they can never really understand what it's like for you to to go through it as you did right uh, tell me about that experience the friends that reached out to you or the people that you reached out to to help help you understand what it was going to be like for you mm -hmm. and how important that was probably kind of the initial sort of big shocker i had in in coming back was in working with my neurologist you know neuro neuroscientist brain surgeon guy at at craig i mean he's Absolutely world-class, best of the best. He was really pessimistic about my, not necessarily my outcome, but he was like, dude, you should not race a bike ever again. Like, bad, bad idea. Because, you know, if you hit your head again, you know, you could, we, just, we don't know, it could be a vegetable. Or you could be totally fine. But, you know, in his professional opinion, he thought racing again for me and even just riding a bike was going to be too risky. And I didn't like hearing that, so I didn't really <laughs> listen to that. <laughs> I can understand that. But, um, yeah, that sort of set off in me just like, okay, not that the doctors are against me or whatever, but it's just they don't, they don't know, you know. For one, they don't know, like, deep down what I'm feeling, what I'm going through, but Literally, they don't know like what will happen if you hit your head again, or right. what will happen if you do X, Y, Z. Like they, they could speculate, but they couldn't tell you exactly. So, I mean, it's not like you don't want to listen to them. You want to listen to their, you know, very professional opinion and take that into account. But then you weigh that against the uh, the risks or pros and cons, and you, you make your own your own decision. And you really do have to take ownership of your care and your treatment, and just go the direction you want to go because if you just listen to everybody else and especially on the medical side which is going to obviously be very conservative you're not going to do anything you're going to you know play it safe and just sit there and yeah you you're not going to hit your head at 60 miles an hour on the pavement ever again but there's a whole lot of cons that comes with you know quitting your previous career or 
um, not being healthy from an athletic standpoint anymore. Um, so yeah, it just, you really kind of have to take charge yourself, which is, was really scary at that time when there's just so many unknowns and like all this is like new, like, I don't know how to come back from a brain injury and all these people are telling me this and that and this and that, and none of it is what I want to hear or what I agree with maybe. And I kind of have, you kind of have to like forge your own path. And for those who don't know your story, you did come back to racing. Yeah. So, and you won a national title. Yeah, I had <laughs> had some. So you can do these things that maybe doctors said you shouldn't do. You exactly. Do. And again, like it's their job to play it safe and be conservative, and I get it. But it's my job as an athlete to <laughs> not do that. So that was April of 2008. Um, it was the week before I was supposed to start the Giro d'Italia, so that was kind of a bummer timing. Um, <laughs> my team went on to win the team time trial that year, and would have been something pretty cool to be a part of. But yeah, so that was April. Basically didn't do anything physical for a few months um, and then just slowly started getting back into it, you know, riding the trainer. Um, eventually, by the end of the year, I was riding outside, but just very carefully. And um, yeah, it was just weird because I felt totally fine. Was there anything inside of you that was like, I hope I don't uh, do these first set of intervals and, and have an aneurysm or something because of the damage that's in there. Was there any part of you that had that, that anxiety? No, I, I wasn't afraid of that. And that, that was, you know, one of their concerns of getting back to exercise too soon, the the blood pressure and Mm -hmm. everything on the brain. Um, in addition to the risk of crashing on your head again, both those were the kind of the main concerns with getting back to exercise and risk too soon or or ever but yeah i you know just took it easy step by step and if anything looking back i probably could have been even more aggressive uh with things you didn't race until the was it the following season oh yeah then i was at two down under the next season in january was my next so it was less than 12 months that you went from hospital bed and and severe brain injury Mm -hmm. to racing again yeah it's amazing yeah wow yeah, so that next year, you know, training camp, getting to the start of the season, you know, it was like getting blasted by the fire hose the whole time. So like, <laughs> whoa, I've been basically doing nothing for nine months. And then like, whoop, yeah. here you go, back back in it. I mean, that was definitely a, a bigger challenge, just physically kind of readapting to all that and kind of learning how my body operated a little bit differently at those intensities. And, and most of all, just like how my brain operated like within the race and I really had to go through a period of, you know, that first few months of the season of sort of going through all the motions and kind of reliving all these situations where it's, you know, maybe it's like uh, we get into a crosswind section. It's like, how do I approach that mentally? And, you know, the first few months of that season, maybe I'd be more hesitant to just like dive into where I need to go or hold the wheel or whatever. And so I would go through all these situations and sort of fuck it up, make a mistake and then I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember how, like, oh, wow. I approached this mentally before. And then the next time, it would it would Just be there clicked. again. Yeah. It's kind of like I had to relearn a lot of things that had become automatic or instinctual. But it didn't take much. I mean, I just had to kind of relive all those things, like, once or twice. And then it was kind of ingrained in me again, you know. Earlier in the show, Dr. Broly, you said that 
things will resolve with when it comes to concussion. Um, you, you stated 50% will resolve in, in two weeks, 90% will resolve in, in a month. That leaves 10% that are unresolved after a month. But what are the, what are the potential long-term repercussions of concussion? Like I mentioned, I think um, from a single or, or maybe two even concussions, I, I wouldn't personally have any real concerns about long-term effects. Um, so I, I'll kind of split your question up into two parts. I think the 10% that don't recover within the four-week window, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I feel like another 5% uh, recover within the next month and then maybe another 2% the month after that or something. And so it starts to taper down. There are certainly people, and you, you see the news stories about them, that they have a single injury and they have persistent headache for however long, um, years, a year later, let's say. And my personal belief is that anything that extends beyond a month, maybe two months, um, the biology of the injury is healed by that point and something else is going on. So, for example, you may have an athlete that has a concussion. Two months later, they continue to complain of headaches. Um, that may be related to a neck injury that happened concurrently with the concussion. Um, so imagine a lot of force to the head, the neck is attached to the head as it turns out. And so there may be something that it got out of alignment and you can actually have a headache that starts from a misalignment in the neck. Um, or they may have ongoing dizziness, same time frame, and maybe it was a vestibular injury that occurred simultaneous with the concussion. So as athletes start getting around that one month period, if they aren't showing good progress, I'm not gonna say they have to be absolutely recovered, but if they aren't showing good progress towards recovery, uh, then that's probably the time, you know, you could even go in earlier, but I would say by one month for sure, you wanna go in and make, you know, go see somebody and say, you know, hey, like this, maybe something else is going on here, what are our options and, and can we get somebody else involved? Um, the other thing is, as we go through the management process, even early on, the, the theory about a month or, or, excuse me, about 10 years ago was that the injury happens, shut the athlete down, put them in a dark closet, turn the lights off, don't let them out until all the symptoms go away. And really what we found um, was that when that happens, that athlete feels isolated, they're removed from their team, they're removed from school if they're a student athlete. Um, and the psychology, we talked about this earlier, the psychology starts to overlay with the injury. So as the concussion symptoms start to wind down, the biology uh, induced symptoms starts to wind down, the psychological symptoms start to wind up and disentangling those two actually becomes a problem. The other thing is particularly with high level athletes uh, is that they like to work out and if they don't work out, they don't feel right. And so, what we're seeing and what we're learning is that, yes, you probably need to shut somebody down for 24, 48, maybe 72 hours. But after that point, you want them to start doing a little bit of activity. Now, a little bit of activity is not 200K with two on, two off uh, <laughs> 10 times over. So a little bit of activity is go for a walk around the block. Right. And if that feels OK, then tomorrow, you know, maybe a little bit longer walk or maybe we put the bike on the trainer, not the rollers, but the trainer where it's bolted in uh, and just turn the pedals over super light and let's see how this goes. And then, then it's just kind of the gradual progression as we move, you know, increasing intensity and duration 
uh, to get back into. And there's actually really good evidence that's come out of um, Buffalo, John Letty and his team. They've been doing this work for a long time and they're really the first ones to show that that exercise as a uh, therapeutic modality really works well for this group of people, both in the short term, that kind of initial recovery period, but then also these individuals that have ongoing symptoms at a month, like getting somebody back on their bike or getting them back to their sport in general in a safe environment. I'm not, I'm not recommending like, hey, football athlete, uh, you have ongoing symptoms at one month, let's throw you back into a game. That's not what I'm saying, but get them back engaged with some physical activity it really starts to, it really works well for a lot of people. They respond really well to it and it brings those symptoms back down to normal levels. So that's kind of like, let's call that kind of the immediate. We have the acute stage, uh, let's say zero, time point zero out to one month. Then we get this intermediate stage, uh, one month out. Then the bigger question is long-term, and by long-term, 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 like years, decades later. So the this idea, this idea of long-term effects around concussion or, or mild TBI, it, it's actually, it was first put into the literature right around the turn of uh, the, the 20th century. I think the first paper was 1928 or something. And it came out of the boxing community. So the idea of the punch drunk, which I think a lot of people have heard of, or dementia pugilistica, I think people have heard that phrase as well. And really what they noted, uh, there, was, there was a researcher in, in New Jersey, um, Harrison Martin, that, that first identified this is it was hand tremor and some impaired cognitive function in these boxers that had a high number of fights and a high number of knockouts, which would just lead you to believe that they lost a lot. And so that was kind of the first reported case. Uh, then kind of moving forward, there were various research articles that, that kind of were in the literature, sporadic in the literature, but up not until 2005 or 2006, and the first modern CTE case, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, was identified by Ben Indomalu in Pittsburgh when he did the autopsy on Mike Webster, the former Pittsburgh Steelers lineman. The idea here is that concussion, and now what we think is head impact without concussion, causes uh, the tau proteins that are in the brain, and tau is a naturally occurring substance in the brain, it breaks loose, um, it gets a bunch of phosphate, uh, molecules attached to it and it gets really sticky and then it deposits. Um, and so if it, I'm sure a lot of people have seen the, 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 the brain slices where you'll see this kind of like pinkish yellow healthy brain tissue and then you see these like dark brown black spots and it's those dark brown black spots um, that are the tau deposits. And the idea is that these things build up and they cause cognitive impairment, impaired motor function kind of depending on where it lays down in the brain. Uh, and that's the thing that I think has drawn the idea of CTE or modern CTE, that's what's drawn the most attention to concussion. That's what the movie was based on, that first case. And I think that's where people are concerned about long-term effects. Um, but like I said, it, it, you, this is not something, you do not get uh, brain-wide tau deposits from one, two concussions. Uh, these individuals that have these high levels of tau are um, typically most, or at least most, re most heavily researched are the former NFL players. So they have decades of exposure uh, to concussion, to head impacts without concussion that, that causes this. The other thing I will say is it is not clear by any stretch of the imagination how many people will get this and why. Um, so if you look at if you look at all NFL players, 
Some, some will end up with CTE and will have cognitive impairment. Uh, that's definitely a thing, but it is very clear it is not all of them. And NFL players live longer than the average population. Um, they have better or they have lower all-cause mortality than the general population. So they have fewer cancer deaths and fewer heart attacks and all those types of things. Um, so it is not as simple as you played football, you're going to get CTE or you had a concussion, you're going to get CTE. We really are just, I mean, this was just identified in 2005, 2006. So we're 10 or 15 years into this and in the scientific world, we're like just at the beginning of trying to understand who and why uh, this happens. So bringing this back to cycling. So here was another thing that caught me by surprise. Here's a, uh, you, you'd probably know these people, a study that was just published this year out of Toronto looking at the uh, post-concussion syndrome in, in adult cyclists and basically said, we, we're pretty sure we're the first study on looking at the long-term effects of concussion in cyclists. And it was encouraging to hear you give the, the, uh, the timeline that you gave because this study was a little uh, more pessimistic. So they said the same thing, that approximately 80 to 90% of con concussions are short-term with symptoms dissipating within about 28 days of injury. But in that uh, 10 to 20% that get the post-concussion syndrome, they were saying that there's a greater mean duration of uh, about 23.7 months. But their definition was uh, if any, even if just a single symptom uh, is maintained. So, for example, headache, fatigue, sleep disturbance, anxiety. So it's interesting you say, well, that might not actually be the concussion. It could be other effects. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't know that study. And so I, I don't want to be critical. I would just say that there is definitely, and there's research on this, uh, Grant Iverson, uh, who's at Harvard, has done some of this work, um, and what he terms, it's the good old days bias. Um, so basically, it's, I never had one symptom in my entire life before this injury occurred, and now because of this injury, I have all these symptoms, <laughs> right, so, right. which we all know is not true. So I, I, I don't want to this group, this paper you decided may be 100% accurate. And so I, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying as a, an alternative explanation, there may be some recall bias in, in their participants. Yeah. Well, I, I was about to say, I was reading their whole list of symptoms and I just went, well, I think even though I've never had a concussion, I have post-concussion <laughs> right, syndrome because right, I right. have a lot of those <laughs> symptoms every day. <laughs> yeah. As it turned out, when I woke up on Tuesday morning, I was fatigued and had a headache, but um, <laughs> My birthday was Monday night, so that might have explained it. So. Happy birthday. Thanks. <laughs> Learning from others who have gone through a similar trauma can be comforting and cathartic. And this is something Timmy found to be true in the aftermath of his crash. I definitely, um, it's not that I wouldn't take as much risk anymore, but I definitely would take more calculated risks, you know. Like this on a descent at 60 miles an hour, diving into a corner. I was just more aware of like, does this really matter that much right now? And if it did, then yeah, I would take that risk and I wouldn't hesitate and it would be fine. But I, I just wouldn't take stupid risks. You know, I was more, more aware of that level, that, that kind of difference. Do you think that being the caliber of athlete that you are, were at that time, helped you recover at the rate that you did? 
was that or was it a double-edged sword the fact that you were you wanted to get back to that level so quickly that that was the the risk i mean like so many injuries and ailments and sicknesses like a big predictor of how well you're going to recover is how healthy you were in the first place right so yeah i was obviously healthy physically very strong uh mentally very strong sort of the mental side of things is something i always devoted a lot of focus and attention on throughout my career and so that was a huge tool like moving forward and you know, working with the psychologist that i always worked with and being able to kind of break things down and take things step by step uh moving forward from there especially in this case where it came to you know just dealing with sort of handling negativity and all the you know, there's a lot of stuff pushing back on me as i was recovering and you know, i didn't really have any like breakthroughs for a while it was just sort of like kind of felt like i was just banging my head against a wall for mm -hmm. for a long time so just still being strong through that and having faith through that you know other question i had for you was about the 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 maybe the chronic effects of this do you still are you a different person now because of this and will you forever be a different person because of this in some ways a few things changed my my wife could probably chime in on chime in on this better than i could probably the biggest thing and actually a helpful thing that happened was i became just like hyper aware of how much energy my brain was using i think when you're healthy and everything's fine like you don't consider the toll that mental energy or stress or whatever takes on your brain and your body as a whole and when i was super compromised as i was recovering you know, i realized like geez even like going out to the grocery store and running an errand and just the stimulus and or like going to some little event and having to talk to six people just how much energy that took you know and i'd come home and i'd just be exhausted you know and obviously that became better and better as time progressed and i could you know but you're just, aware of that now which right a lot of us probably take it for granted that it, it you don't even take it into consideration when we're thinking about the stress that we're going exactly. through or putting ourselves under exactly and um you know at that time obviously the big focus of my life is racing what really helped me in bike racing and in the race itself was I started thinking of things in terms of managing my mental energy even more so than my physical energy you know like say you've got this five hour long race and I found it was more taxing on me to be like maybe fighting for a position all the time you know that's taking mental energy even if that's saving you physical energy because you're just in better position mm -hmm. right but if you're fighting all the time and just stressing on the whole race or whatever, then when it is time to like really be there and be at your best, like you might be just so fried mentally, you don't want to fight anymore yeah. at the point where it actually matters. You right. know? So I really sort of compartmentalized the race in the sections where I was really on or sections where I was off. Mm. And then um, that way I could sort of have the confidence that, okay, I'm turning my brain off for a little bit because I got some chill time here. I'm not going to fight for position. I'm just going to chill wherever I end up. That's great. But I'll tell you what, at 35K to go, when we get to whatever little town, it's freaking go time. Yeah. And <laughs> I would like owe that to myself mm. for sort of taking that rest and and have the confidence like, okay, I've been chilling this last hour mentally, so I've got no excuses. Mm-hmm. 
but to just be totally on it when it when it matters you know mm-hmm. so yeah just being hyper aware of just my mental energy with, within the race i think really really helped me what about memory issues do they linger or anything like that even now just you know remembering small details <laughs> again like I, I joke but it's partially true or maybe it's just an excuse i don't know <laughs> but i do feel like i have a limited brain capacity i mean like like all of us right but i'm just aware of what that is and i'm aware of what happens when my brain gets too full of non-important things mm-hmm. and i start screwing up i start making mistakes so i i just can't process like all this useless information that's always yeah, coming I, at this us this sounds like a good thing in yeah. a lot of ways yeah yeah to have that awareness totally totally and like in my career now and in, in real estate i think it really helps me fil- filter down what matters and, and what doesn't and i am extremely forward with people I know you like to communicate with these really long text messages or emails, or you like to talk a lot and blah, 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 blah. But I'm not going to like read it all because I just can't process all that. So if there's something you really need me to know, or you really want me to do, like make sure that's very, very clear. Cause I, I, I just can't sort through all this stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just how you set up your life and structure your life and how uh, you keep organized. That's still something I really have to pay attention to and, and manage even now years later just staying organized and keeping things simple because again it's just really easy for me to sort of get disorganized Mm -hmm. um so i structure my um you know all my systems around making that easy for me and like the team i work with in real estate now you know having certain things delegated to others so i can focus on what i need to do and uh not not letting it get like all mixed up you know Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody has come to you that has had a TBI in their life um, or if you wanted to speak to those out there that are listening, but what would you say to somebody if they, 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 they do come to you or if they're listening? Yeah, and kind of back to when we were talking about I kind of trailed off on something else. That's another thing. Like I get kind of distracted pretty easily and I forget what I was talking about in the first place. Again, like it's not like nobody else has that problem, but it's just something I'm, I'm hyper aware of and I think is is pretty different with me but yeah we were talking about the neurologist i was working with and he was pretty pessimistic about you know what i should be doing moving forward and yeah kind of the biggest challenge i found was you know it was easy to find information and stories of people that had some significant brain injury in a car accident or whatever and took them this many years and they did x y and z and now they're back working at the desk selling insurance or something like that's great and all but you know, as an elite athlete, you need that last two, three percent. Whereas if you're kind of a regular person, you're not even going to notice maybe that you're missing even 10 percent, maybe because you're not just on the limit physically and mentally like you are as as an athlete. And just because of sheer numbers, I mean, there's just not that much data or information or stories out there from other athletes who have maybe had a similar incident or a similar injury. And then, you know, it's a public story or uh, you have a way to get get in touch with them and talk to them about it. So that was like the biggest challenge for sure that I I had. It was just like, okay, like I'm 90% there, but like how do I get the rest of the way? And there's like nobody can tell me. The doctors can't really tell me. Um, And by far the most helpful thing I found was just talking to other athletes that had gone through something similar. And again, it's not going to be the same thing. 
you'll not, you know, no two athletes are going to have the same experience, but hearing their stories and being empathetic with them was like, oh yeah, I totally feel that too. I talked to a couple of ski racing athletes quite a bit. That, that's my kind of initial background is from alpine ski racing. So I'm still have a foot in the door in that world. One athlete, Scott McCartney, um, on the U.S. ski team, he had an unbelievable crash on the Kitzbühel downhill maybe two years before my crash. I mean, just Google it. It'll be all over the Internet. And he was, yeah, he was in, in bad shape for a while. And he you know, was ultimately able to come back, be on the World Cup for a few more years before he, he ultimately moved on to other things. But talked to him quite a bit on the phone, and um, he was super helpful kind of sharing his experience. Even though his recovery um, and the injury itself were really not at all like mine whatsoever. Like he had kind of the whole opposite sort of range of symptoms that I did. So it was hard to relate to, you know, his experience specifically, but it was helpful. I talked talked to another uh, U.S. ski team athlete that I had become friends with long after my recovery. I mean, this was like 2014-15, so I retired from the sport at that point. And she had a significant crash ski racing and training in 2007, I believe. A uh, very similar injury, and, and talking to her a bunch, I found out she had you know, very similar symptoms. So that was really cool to relate to her on that. And one, one thing that was kind of life-changing in, you know, hearing her story and her sharing everything with me was, you know, at at that time I was really struggling with a sort of undiagnosed depression and some other things I didn't even know was like wrong. Um, But she was telling me about how you know, she was feeling really similar and was in a pretty dark place, but she started trying to find a right like medication combo to manage that mental health issue. And she was like, yeah, I finally found the right combo with my doctor. And it was like the fog like lifted and like this and this was better. And I'm just like, what? Like, like I hadn't even considered that. And mm. a doctor never really pushed that on me, like doing the medication route and it's also something like I'm like this badass tough athlete. Like I don't need to like take drugs to make <laughs> my brain feel better. Like right, I'll just right. figure yeah. it out. Yeah. You know? Endurance athlete mentality of just pushing through. I can do this. I'm yeah, own, like right? and I'm super aware and work on my mental state all the time and um yeah, it'll be fine. So it didn't even cross my mind. Um and I, I wish a doctor had pushed that on me more to sort of try out because it is true that depression is like a huge, uh, very common symptom of traumatic brain injury survivors, you know, just because like in my case, uh, you know, my brain's ability to make endorphins and all that kind of stuff is really limited, literally is like a chemical imbalance. It's not just something you can just talk about and like tough it through, you know? Right. But anyway, she was telling me about what a great experience she had, like finally figuring out the right medication and I, I kind of blew my mind like what you're like this badass stoic athlete and like you have to take happy pills to like make it all better <laughs> all right I'll give that a shot I mean I trust you so I did and figured it out with my doctor and same freaking thing man like the fog lifted and like my life was like totally different from from that point on from managing like the depression and um kind of an, another big thing that I didn't really realize 
while I was racing, but um, in retrospect, it makes total sense. But um, it also, my injury also kind of gave me a <clears throat> good bit of like ADHD, like hence, you know, how I'm still can get distracted or lose track of things fairly easily. But that is hugely managed now with like the medication mm -hmm. that I take. And yeah, looking back, it was like, you know, I, I used to be one of the best time trialists in the country. And after my head injury, I never, literally, I can't think of a single time trial result I ever had the rest of my career that I was like proud of. Like, mm. oh yeah, I, you know, I was, I was yeah. a good. One. I was, I wrote to my take focus, and you just didn't have it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I always thought it was like a physical thing, like oh, my ability to do whatever, whatever lactate threshold, something was limited. But yeah, it was absolutely more of a focus thing so anyways the moral of all that story is in addition to like sharing my story about my head injury also sharing that like there's no shame in like going the medication route if you need to whether that's because of the head injury or because of whatever other mental health route or uh, mental health issue i mean it makes a makes a huge huge like life-changing in my case difference <laughs> When you go beyond concussion, uh, what are the signs that it's more than just just? I, mean, I shouldn't say just a concussion because these can change people's lives at, at least in a, a short term. We talked about this earlier, where TBI broadly is bucketed into mild traumatic, moderate, and severe brain injury. And from a clinical standpoint, the way we think there's there's a clinical rating scale called the Glasgow Coma Scale. Um, where depending on your score, you get bucketed into one of these three, these three groups. Um, so mild traumatic brain injury concussion is, is 13, 14, 15, so the highest possible scores. Uh, moderate and severe obviously fall below that, and they're, they're largely based on duration of loss of consciousness and uh, amnesia, length of amnesia, and, and things of that nature. That's from the clinical standpoint. So if you just were to talk to a, a medical provider, if that's how it would be evaluated. So the Glasgow Coma Scale was invented um, before MRI and MCT were available, couldn't do it. In, in the modern era, and I'm not aware of classification systems, but the way I think about it is anything that shows up on a CT scan as a structural injury to the brain tissue, then you get automatically bucketed into moderate, severe, depending on how, how severe the severe is. Um, and so when we talk about long-term effects of, of moderate and severe brain injury, you know, we're talking about somebody that had a had structural change to their brain, not a fun, you know, we talk about concussion or maltraic brain injury as a functional change, right? So it's like the software is not working well, but we can reboot. Um, now we're talking about structural change heart, the hardware itself has changed. And depending on the magnitude of that change, the brain may or may not be able to compensate for it. So the brain is amazingly plastic. Like it can recover from all sorts of things. There's redundancy um, and, and it can handle a lot of injury, insult and injury. Um, but there is, there's a point when it can't do it. Uh, and so some people, depending on where the injury has occurred and the extent of that injury, they just may have persistent effects that just go on. Um, you know, they may see some degree of improvement, but they may never get back to where they were. When somebody has, you say structural changes must take place. Um, if there's bleeding on the brain, does that 
naturally indicate that there has been a structural change or, or is that a gray area here? Uh, so I, we're getting a little bit out of my area um, since everything I deal with has no bleeding and no structural damage. So uh, I'm, I'm just going to give opinion at this point and not any, uh, if, if one of your listeners wants to phone in or uh, write in and correct me, I'm, I'm, I'll be very humble and agree with them. Um, but if you have bleeding, then something, the, there was structural damage, right? The vessel was ruptured. Uh, and so you, you know, there's, there's damage there. Uh, now that bleeding, depending on where it occurs, um, it, it can be handled in a way that there's no long-term damage. Um, and so if you have bleeding kind of on the very periphery of the brain, the space between the brain and the skull, um, you can, not to be too graphic here, but you can drill into the skull um, or remove a section of the skull and relieve that pressure, stop the bleeding, and then depending on how fast it happens and other things are involved, they may, there may be a very positive outcome. Um, if it is deeper in the brain, can't get to it, um, or it is so severe, uh, there may be uh, more permanent consequences that come with that. Strangely, uh, from my point of view, some people think that helmets don't help, but let's let's talk about helmets specifically. Do do they help? Uh, how do they help? And 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 I don't know if you can speak to this, but where. where what are the shortcomings of, of and, and cycling specifically here? So helmets for sure help, uh, and they help on many levels. So, I mean, we touched on this. You know, I, I grew up learning to ride a bike without a helmet. I don't think I put one on until my teen years. Um, I remember I never wore a hairnet, but I had friends that wore them, so it kind of dates me a bit. And Jana, um, Jana, our producer, is looking at us like, why would the man be wearing a hairnet? That's the style <laughs> of a helmet from, from yesteryear. It wasn't actually watch a American hairnet. Flyers. Yeah, We've already told American you you have to watch right. American Flyers. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's, it was basically like uh, four pieces of, of uh, very thin padding, essentially. <laughs> it did, I don't know that it did yeah. all that much, right? They were, they were le- I think they were more for abrasion than they were for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Helmets initially were not designed for concussion. Helmets were designed to prevent skull fracture and... Within, I'm going to bounce back and forth here, but within the football context, they are really good at that, at preventing skull fracture. Um, And largely they were invented or designed to prevent skull fracture because that's what people were worried about. They were worried about skull fracture and then moderate severe TBI because, as I said before, people weren't largely concerned about concussion. Then as there was concern around concussion, newer technologies started being invented to help uh, dissipate some of those forces that we see kind of at the lower end that cause concussion. So, you know, technologies, the MIPS technology, the wave cell technology, that, that is specifically designed to try to mitigate uh, forces that, that can cause concussion. And the data would suggest that they, they do that. Um, definitely the newer football helmets, there's very clear data that, that the newer football helmets are better than the old ones and concussion rates are, are down because of that. Um, they are not, there will never be a helmet that is 100% concussion resistant or concussion proof or whatever term you want to use. It, it just will not happen just based on the way we are designed as human beings. Uh, the brain sits inside the skull. Uh, there's a little bit of fluid around the brain uh, that kind of is cushions it in some level, but we can't stabilize the brain directly. So there's just no way we'll ever develop a concussion proof helmet. Um, 
but the technologies will get better uh, and, and you know help mitigate more and more of these forces. Um, but but the new helmets are are good. They they definitely help. Um, and I would I would tell everybody to wear one under all circumstances. Um, I'm not uh, I'm not immune to riding through town and asking people where their helmets are. I'm not gonna say I do it a lot, but I have done it. So. Um, you know, because it, it to me in this day and age, it's a little ridiculous that you're not wearing a helmet. Um, and I would say a massive pet peeve of mine is you'll see a family out riding, uh, the kid or kids will have helmets on and then mom and dad don't. And uh, apparently gravity doesn't affect the parents the same way it affects the kids. So um, I, I've been known to make a comment or two. <laughs> I admit I was surprised by this. So first of all, I'll say getting ready for this episode, I started to do my research on, on concussion and just went, this is such a complex subject. There's, you know, I'm glad we have a good expert because I, I can't even pretend to be an expert on concussion. So I just focused on the research looking at cycling specifically in concussion. And obviously a lot of helmet research came up. And I went into it with that mindset of, yeah, the helmet will perfect fracture, as you said, but it can't do much for a concussion because that's your, your brain moved around inside the skull. And it really sounds like that's a myth that I was believing that's that's a myth. And so I'm looking at, at one study right now. So it would look at the effects of, of a helmet versus non-helmeted head and said this resulted in a reduction of the risk of concussion of up to 54%. The, the stress to the skull bone went from a fracture level of 80 MPA down to 13 to 16 MPA when a helmet was included, and the skull fracture risk was reduced by up to 98%. There was also another study out of uh, England, uh, or, or Great Britain, sorry, uh, that looked at 11,192 patients who had been in some sort of cycling accident that had been reported at the trauma uh, units and uh, showed that um, patients who wore helmets, so it says here, cycling helmet uh, use was also associated with a reduction in severe traumatic brain injury, 19.1% versus 47.6%. So I was actually quite surprised the difference a helmet can make. Dr. Brolio, I don't know if you can speak to the different technologies, but I think that some of them are an attempt to reduce these shearing forces and some of these things. So maybe maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about that. I'll just put in a picture real quick, just since we're talking about helmets, um, in, in particular too. So all helmets have to pass a, a national standard in order to be certified and, and you know, put into the marketplace. So um, you know anybody buying an off-the-shelf helmet, like it's going to meet this minimum uh, scoring or testing. I think for people that are interested in finding the most concussion resistant helmet, I would encourage them to go look at the work um, being done at Virginia Tech. So Stefan Duma, Duma and Steve Rousen, um, they developed this, the, the star rating system and, and they started with football, but, and they've gone into other sports, but they, they do cycling helmets. They evaluate cycling helmets and they will test and rate cycling helmets based on their ability to uh, mitigate the forces associated with concussion. This is kind of like a kind of like a JD Power rating for yeah. a crash testing in in vehicles. They get a star yeah. rating, correct? Exactly, and and so really the the you know they they get it for more scientific inquiry and, and knowledge development. But really, what it's done is it's driven the industry. 
because everybody wants to be at the top of the list and that causes people to innovate and get better. Um, and we saw this uh, with Trek and the wave cell and I'm aware of other things that are going on with wave cell right now, but um, you know, they were trying to innovate and be better and, and do better than MIPS, which came before them. And somebody will come out with something better than that. And, and that's that type of, you know, indirect pressure on the industry will make these things get better. Um, but back to your question. So largely we can think of kind of the forces of the acting on the, the head and the brain kind of in, in two large buckets and, and one of these linear forces. So that's just force applied really straight through the center of mass of the brain. So just in a straight line. The other are these rotational uh, acceleration or rotational forces that are occurring. And this is more of the twisting and the shearing uh, that, that, uh, that happens with impact. And neither one of them occur in isolation of the other. Uh, they always occur uh, in parallel with each other. Um, they, they're really highly correlated for that matter. Um, we, you'll sometimes hear that it's 98 Gs of linear acceleration is, is most likely to cause concussion. There's, there's no threshold concussion, as it turns out. We spent 10 years trying to find one, we couldn't do it. And, um, but it's, it's very easy when we talk to people, it's very easy for someone to conceptualize 98 Gs as opposed to 5,500 grads. So we talk about linear just because conceptually it's easier and the correlation between the two linear and rotational is, is pretty tight. But those are the two. And so the, the traditional helmets were largely built around our understanding of linear acceleration and its work on the brain or uh, influence on the brain. The newer technology, MIPS, wave cell and others, um, that's, that's largely around rotational and trying to mitigate some of those rotational uh, acceleration or the rotational acceleration that occurs after impact. Um, and so that's the difference is they've kind of started addressing this other uh, component of the impact that results in injury. Could you explain what those rotational forces are? It's essentially the, 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 the helmet um, contacting the ground uh, the, and then the, the brain rotating within the skull, which would lead to the neuron stretching and, and so forth. Is that correct? Exactly. So there's some there's some data to suggest that it's it's the rotational component of the injury that actually causes the injury and the linear. If you could have a pure linear impact, it wouldn't do anything, um, or you would you would end up with a skull fracture before anything else would happen. So um, it so it's that rotational which uh, you know the, the brain is fixed at the bottom through the stem uh, at the brain stem and so. You, know, you can imagine this kind of the head is sloshing inside of the skull with the base fixed. It, it, I don't know if you make it see my hands, but it, it twists, it rotates. And uh, that's what causes the neurons to, to stretch. And then we talked about the, the ion change that happens from that. So if you can reduce the amount that it rotates, that rotational acceleration, then, uh, then you can reduce the risk for injury. Let's go back to Timmy one last time. Looking back on his experience, there are some things he would have done differently. Like I was saying, I was you know coming back in the 2009 season, just kind of back in the deep end training camp, um, two down under, and then it was just full on in Europe from there. And the whole time, I just felt like I was beating my head against the wall, and racing was going okay. You know, I was um, doing my job as a domestique and. It was okay. Like I was performing okay. It wasn't terrible. And I felt okay, but I didn't feel great. And that's just kind of always how it was. And by mid-season, by June, I was just over it. I'm like, this is going nowhere. This sucks. I feel like ass all the time. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. 
I'm, yeah, I don't know. So then we're at the Dauphiné, and again, that race is it's going well, doing my job. Like, every day is just so hard. I'm just, like, dying. But, I'm again, I'm, like, doing my job. It's fine, but it just sucks so badly. Day before the last stage, I'm just like, yeah, screw this. I'm done. I Like, tomorrow literally is going to be my last day of racing, and I'm going to quit. I'm going to go back to school, get my real estate license, whatever, whatever. You know, I was thinking of moving on. And, um, yeah, I remember just being fully committed that to that the night before stage nine or whatever. And then on the bus, the way to the race, I was just totally checked out. And I think I almost missed sign in. Maybe I didn't sign in. I don't know. Line up at the race. And then, again, I'm, you know, doing my job, covering breaks and in the, in the covering moves on the first part of the race. And um, I find myself in this, like, 30-man split that ends up getting some big time. And the whole time, I'm just, like, sitting on the back waiting to get dropped, basically. And we're just rolling, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, 20K to go. We're coming into the the last climb. It's like this Cat 1 climb in the Alps and then descend and then flat to the finish real quick. And we start going up the climb. And, again, I'm just waiting to get dropped. And then we're going up in that first kilometer, and, like, guys are just, like, going backwards everywhere. I mean, and there's some serious firepower in this move, too. And before I knew it, I was like on the front with like, out even trying. I'm like, and it was like this weird, surreal <laughs> experience. Of what? Like, I literally thought something was like wrong with the world. Like, how is this happening? Like Oscar Pereiro is like dropped. Like what's going on? Well, I guess I might as well attack. I was the only guy from my team in the move. So I just lit it up and um, only one guy could stay with me. Uh, eventually he caught me like just at the top and then the two of us like ripped down the descent time trial to the finish and um we're sprinting for the win on state you know the last stage of the dauphine and literally at the you know 200 meters to go i was like waiting for the peloton to just like catch up like no way is this happening yeah and i freaking didn't win the sprint i got second by like a tire width <laughs> um almost a perfect ending yeah, yeah. But, yeah, that would have been a big win. But, I mean, at that time, that was as good as a, as a win for me because it was, like, in one day, like, right after I had literally quit in my mind, like, everything changed. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, maybe this I can do this. is what bike racing is about. Yeah, like, yeah, that was literally my best result of my career. And I felt amazing. So maybe it's not over. And then the rest of the season just went, you know, took off from there because that, that mental switch was flipped, you know. So yeah, from from there on, it was kind of a, a lot easier to, you know, focus ahead and, and move forward and, and not be feeling like you know my injury was holding me back anymore. Mm -hmm. Awesome, that's a great story. <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah, <laughs> it, and, and again, that like, was you said two thousand nine. That would have two thousand nine. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, you know, I raced for five more years and uh, kept getting better and better results and. Um, see so yeah, on, on the outside and on paper, like everything was getting better and better for Timmy Duggan, you know, um, my career was progressing. I was riding for amazing teams, but like internally inside my head, it was just getting worse and worse. I was more and more miserable. I just freaking hated it. I was hmm. super depressed, but didn't realize it. And ultimately, you know, that feeling is what led me to retire and move on, you know, 
everything was going so well, riding for the best teams, making more money than I ever had, had you know, having the best, better results than I ever had, but I was still just miserable. So I thought quitting cycling was going to be a fix to that, um, but it wasn't. <laughs> so I had to keep working through stuff, and yeah, it wasn't until that point I figured out the medication thing. If I had figured that out while I was racing, I would probably still be racing. So that's kind of a bummer, but um, too too late at this point. Um, yeah, again, if there if there's anything I can impress on people is you know there's definitely no shame or harm in trying the medication route if that's what you need to do for your recovering from your head injury or your mental health. Yeah, taking matters into your own hands despite you know what your brilliant neuroscientist might have to say about your case specifically, um, and just doing what what you feel you need to do. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Dr. Brolio, we like to close out the show with one-minute take-homes. I know it's a complex subject, a lot to talk about, but if you could try to encapsulate the, the, the biggest message you'd like people to take home with them from this show. Yeah, happy to do it. Um, I think the biggest thing I would, I would tell your audience is, um, you know, certainly you want to take concussion or suspected concussion very seriously, uh, but at the same time, and, and please go get checked out by medical providers, but at the same time, I, I really do not think that if it's rapidly identified and, and managed appropriately, that there's significant concern for any long-term effects. Um, and so, you know, really what we're trying to do at the Michigan Concussion Center is um, helping people understand that um, and letting them get back to their sport and lead their best lives. Trevor, what do you have to say? This is a tough one because, as I said, I started to dig into the research and just went, I don't even know to, where to start. This isn't like an injury where you get a skin abrasion and I can tell you exactly what to do to, uh, to address that. As we said, with everybody, it expresses differently. Uh, the recovery is different. So it's an extraordinary challenge you, you have ahead of you uh, trying to give any sort of standards that, that people can use that can dis disseminate to the sport. So I think you really hit on the two points that I would say I learned from you in this episode, which is A, if you get a concussion, it's not the end of the world, uh, but B, take it seriously and, and be careful and make sure you recover, and recover correctly. Chris? I think I would add something that I learned from from talking with with Timmy Duggan and some others, and and that is kind of the support we haven't really t we didn't really talk about that in this show, but he had a hard time understanding what life was going to be like after his uh, crash, after the injury, and all the people in the world that had science degrees and medical degrees weren't able to get inside his body and tell him what 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 to expect. So if you have a concussion, if you have a TBI, I think one of the best things you can do is to talk to others that have gone through this and have them try to help you understand what it's going to be like, how long it, you know, no, by, by no means just say, oh, their, their case was like this, so I can expect this. But they, they can serve as a great support system and help you along the way, helps you to set expectations um, and deal with some of the psychological ramifications that you might have to address later on because of the injury. Well, Dr. Broga, thank you. It was a real joy having you on the show. I hope we can talk with you again. Please, anytime. 
That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode and join in on this one as well. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Stephen Brolio, Timmy Duggan, Hannah Finchamp, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.